Each one of us shapes our destiny through the decisions that we make. If you think about it, we make hundreds, maybe thousands of decisions every day. These decisions are not made in a vacuum. And what I mean is that every decision has some sort of long-lasting impact upon our lives. And I think this is important for us to remember because we are largely a, a blame culture. And what I mean is very little is actually ever our fault. There's always someone else to blame for the problems that we're dealing with in our lives. Very rarely do we admit that the problems we face come from the decisions that we've made. We feel entitled to have the results we want regardless of the decisions we've made. When we don't get the results we want, it was because someone else had it in for us and not because of the decisions that we have made. Every decision has a resulting consequence. Who we are today is largely a result of the decisions we've made in the past. Who and what we become in the future will largely depend on the decisions we make between now and then. The decisions I make determine the results I receive. And what we want is we want to make one decision and have a different result. We want to eat pizza and donuts and have the result be that we lose weight. I want that anyway. We want to decide to watch TV or run around instead of doing our homework. The result to be that we make good grades. We want to decide to do our own thing and yet have a close relationship with Jesus. Sadly, this is just not the way the world works. The decisions we make determine the results that we see. Making decisions is a part of life. This is especially true if we want to be faithful followers of Jesus. So we're going to look today at decisions we need to make if we want to follow Jesus. Open your Bible to John chapter 5, verse 41. That's where we're starting. It's page 813 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. And I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from God only? But do not think that I shall accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The title of the message is Receiving Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we want to make decisions that would honor you. We want to make decisions that would draw us closer to you. We want to know you and to make you known. So I ask you today to help us, Father, to have hearts that would hear what your word has to say. Father, help us to be focused upon you this morning. Lay aside the cares of life for this small period of time that we could hear your word, we could receive your word, and we could be challenged and changed by your word. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways, that it would be you that we hear and not me. We need you today, God, to work in our hearts and to work in our lives. Be glorified in the decisions we make and how we respond. We ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Jesus has, in the previous verses, made some amazing claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the giver of life. He claimed to be the final judge. Those claims were pretty amazing. He then gave witnesses that testified that he was who he claimed to be. 
Despite this, the people that were listening to Jesus this time, largely the religious leaders, they knew, or Jesus knew that they were not going to receive him. By and large, they were going to reject him as the Christ and as the Son of God. And so Jesus, knowing this, he begins to take them to task for the reasons that they're giving for rejecting Jesus. So as I studied the passage this week, I, I saw that and I thought the title of the message initially was going to be the rejection of Jesus. And I had it all outlined and look. And then I realized hmm, what I'll be teaching is how to reject Jesus. And I thought that would not be a good thing. Right? What did you learn in church today? Yeah, preacher taught us how to reject Jesus. I didn't necessarily want that to be what we learned in here today. So I thought it would be better for us to learn from their mistakes. Right? Rather than learning what they did to reject Jesus, what do we need to do? So that we can receive Jesus. So that we can avoid the mistakes that they make. And what I saw is that their rejection of Jesus, of course, it was based upon the decisions that they make. And it will be the same with our receiving of Jesus. Right? The decisions I make determine whether I receive or reject Jesus. The decisions I make determine whether I will receive or reject Jesus. And there are three decisions that we need to make if we want to receive Jesus. The first is to love God. Jesus tells them in verse 42, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. Now, that's an interesting thing, right? And it's interesting because of who he's talking to, right? Jesus is not talking to irreligious people. Jesus is not talking to bell worshipers. Jesus is not talking to tax collectors and prostitutes. By and large, Jesus is talking to Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. These were the most religious people of the day. If you were to ask an average Jew, what what did it mean to be a good Jew that was devoted to God in Judaism? They would point to a Pharisee, to a scribe, or to a Sadducee, and they would say, that's what it's all about. They have it all lined out. And so these were very religious people. They tithed a portion of All that they had. They fasted twice in a week. They offered all of the right sacrifices at all of the right times. They wore tassels on their garments because because the Bible said to. I mean, they they knew the rules and they kept the rules. And yet Jesus accuses them of not loving God. And it's interesting. right? Because what we can see in this is that it's possible for us. To be very religiously active. To do all the things that that we think we're supposed to do and yet still miss the most important thing. Miss a loving relationship with God. Right? And, And I mean, the thing is, I'm not talking about we can be involved in some other religion. Right? What I'm saying is we can be involved in doing the things of the Christian religion. And yet still miss out on a loving relationship with God. Now, that sounds crazy. I mean... How could I I do all of the right things and yet still miss the most important thing of loving God? Well, it is possible because Jesus would later talk to a church in the book of Revelation. Here's what he would say. I know your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored in my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, just stop there. I mean, you look at all the things that these folks are doing. This, this is a good church from outward appearances, right? They, they work and they labor. And the idea of labor and work there is that they worked hard. Right? It's not that they did it when it was convenient. But they worked to the point of exhaustion and yet kept on going and they were working in his namesake. And patience carries with the idea of pressing on when it was hard. 
Right. So they they kept on keeping on, even when there was opposition and difficulty that they they had. They, they strove for holiness. They, they couldn't bear those that were evil. They were a discerning church. They knew that not everybody that came in the name of Jesus was truly coming in the name of Jesus. And so they listened to what people had to say. They tested it against what they knew to be true. And those that were true, they accepted. Those that were not, they to put away from. They have persevered and have patience. They have labored for his name's sake and have not become weary. I mean, again, this was a working church. They did all the things that you can imagine a church was supposed to do. They were actively involved in it. And yet Jesus has something against them. He said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Right? So there was a problem in the church. And it wasn't that they weren't doctrinally sound. They were. It wasn't that they were sinful people. They weren't. They were living holy lives. It wasn't that they weren't growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They were. They were laboring and they had patience. It wasn't that they were fair-weather followers of Jesus. When things were hard, they were faithful to Christ. The problem that they had is that they had left their first love. Right? When they first knew Jesus and they first were saved by Jesus, they did everything that they did because of Jesus and they loved for Him. But now over time, that had began to wane. And they had trained, traded an inward love for Jesus for outward actions in the name of Jesus. And what Jesus says to them is... I'm not going to accept that. That is not good enough. Now, considering all that they're doing, we have to wonder, how big a deal is it really? I mean, they're, they're doing things. Right? They're not lazy. They're not slackers. They're not lukewarm Laodiceans. They seem to be fully devoted followers of Christ, but without love for God. Is it really that big of a deal? Well, I think when we... Read it in light of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, I'm always amazed by this passage. 1 Corinthians 13 is the, the great love passage. It tells us all that love is and all that love does. But in the first few verses, it reminds us of the importance of love. And normally when we talk about 1 Corinthians 13, we apply it to our relationships with others, right? This, uh, what, last year, year before, we had a, a series on, on marriage. And this was the first passage, right? We need to love one another in our marriage if we're going to have strong and healthy marriages. We start here, and that's, a, that's what it means. I mean, that's a part of what it is. But we also have to apply this into our relationship with God. But our relationship with God is meant to be a relationship based on love. And you find this all throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. What God wants from us is not necessarily slavish devotion to the rules. He wants us to love Him and to choose Him. Right? Our, our obedience to God, our devotion to God, is always meant to flow out of the fact that we, we love God and we want to do what He wants us to do. We want to please Him with our lives. Now Paul says, he says there that, that nothing we do matters if we do not have love. Now, I think we know this in other areas. right? I watched two weeks ago. A guy on the internet who was a street preacher. And if you've ever seen street preachers, they go out and they stand on the street and they preach. And as a general rule, what they preach is, you are going to hell. Right? If you don't repent, you're going to hell. And that's generally the, the whole basis of all that they preach. Now, is that a true statement? Absolutely. 
If you don't repent and believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. Now, does it communicate to the people that I love you? And so I'm telling you this. No. What do they become? A sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Right? If someone that you know doesn't like you comes up to you and points out an area that you're wrong, do you receive that as correction and think you need to be think you need to make changes? Or do you think about the ways you could punch them in the throat and not get fired from your job? Right? Now, if someone that loves you, that you know cares about you, comes up and talks to you, is it different even though they say the exact same things? Sure. Right? Love is what makes the difference in something that is useful and something that is just annoying. And in our service to God, love must be central to it all. Right? Love must be the motivating factor behind all that we do for the Lord. I mean, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest commandment in the law? I bet almost everyone in here could say, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is likened to it. That is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus said that on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if I love God as I'm supposed to, I'll do everything else that God wants me to do. If I love people as I'm supposed to, I will always treat them in the way that I'm supposed to treat them. Love is the most important thing that we can do. So how are we going to follow God without loving God? Right, what we'll do is we will be some sort of, have some sort of slavish devotion to rigid rules that we follow. But we're not going to like it. We're, we're going to kind of hate what we do, but we're doing it so that God doesn't smite us. We're doing it to check a box on our list. We're doing it so that others will look at us and say, well, look how great they are. And what God wants us to understand, what Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand, what he wanted the Ephesians to understand, what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand is, if we don't love God, and if love isn't the motivator behind what we do, those actions don't matter. They are no benefit whatsoever. I mean, look at what Jesus went on to say to the Ephesians. He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first work for us. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Right? Remember from where you've fallen. Remember that when you were first saved, you served me because you loved me. Repent of your loveless Christianity and go back to doing things because you love me. And if you don't, I'll remove your lampstand. Now, the lampstand represented the church. And what he's telling them is this. If you press on. In your loveless Christianity, if you press on in your slaveless devotion to the rules, slavish devotion to the rules, devoid of love for me, I will shut your church down. Jesus would rather the church close than persevere in loveless Christianity. What he wants is loving devotion to him. And we don't have time to get into everything about it. But when we love God, it always pushes us closer to Jesus. When I serve God because I love God, it will always draw me closer to Jesus. But when I serve God out of a need to be good enough, when I serve God out of a need to check my box, when I serve God out of a need to be respected by my peers, it will always push me away from Jesus. If I want to receive Jesus and follow Jesus, I must love God. Without that, nothing else matters. Secondly, seek the approval of God 
over man. He says in verse 43, come in my name and my father's name, but you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from only God? One of the things that happens when you begin to have a loveless Christianity, a devotion that is not based upon love for God, but slavish adherence to the rules, is that you begin to compare yourself with others. Right. You begin to to decide, here's how I know if I'm good enough, if I'm better than Scott. Right. As long as I'm better than Scott, I'm okay. Now, I may not be as good as Red, but if I'm better than Scott and people will look at me and recognize that I'm better than Scott, well, that's fine. Another thing that begins to happen is when we have this slavish devotion to the rules rather than love for the Lord, we set ourselves up as judges. Because how can I know if I'm better than Scott if I'm not judging Scott? How can I know if I'm not doing more than he is, if I'm not looking at him and finding all the ways that he's failing and not doing enough? Right? And so what happens is, as we begin to serve the Lord without loving God, we begin to find ways to look down on others to make ourselves feel good. We begin to find ways to judge others and we set ourselves up as the gatekeepers to faithfulness. I and I alone know who's truly faithful. I and I alone determine who loves God and who serves God and who does what is right. I set the standard. I am the standard in a lot of cases. And we watch and we look at others. Now, part of what happens when we set ourselves up as the judge is when it's really important for us that other people see us in that way. But it is really important that other people see us as devoted. It is really important that other people see us as faithful. Now, that doesn't mean we have to really be that way. All that matters is what others think we are. Our appearance in public is far more important than our character at home. And what we're doing is we are seeking the approval of others. As long as I am respected by my peers... As long as other people that I know are good Christians think I'm a good Christian, that's all that really matters. And that was a huge part of what it was to be a Pharisee. The Pharisees, one of the ways that they determined who was good and who was bad was that they judged one another. It was truly important to them to be esteemed in the eyes of others. Now, Jesus will talk to them in Matthew 23 and say that inside... They're filled with dead men's bones and hypocrisy and lawlessness. That they're they're hypocrites. That they appear one thing, but they're really something else. But the thing is, they didn't care. They didn't care what they really were. What they cared about was what they appeared to be, what others thought of them. Now, God had a different opinion of them, but they didn't care as much about God's opinion of them as they did the esteem that they got from others who said, gosh, they're good. Gosh, they're an awesome example. I would like to be like them. See, if we are going to decide to receive Jesus and determine that we're going to follow him, we're going to have to realize that we have to seek the approval of God over the approval of man, knowing that there will be times where we cannot receive both. Look at what Paul said. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. See, when Paul committed his life to Jesus, it changed everything in his life. When Paul committed his life to Jesus, he lost his family. He lost his standing in the community. 
He lost his job. He kind of lost everything. And when it when Paul realized who Jesus was, what Jesus had done and what Jesus wanted him to do, he knew there was a choice to make. He could please men and keep doing what he was doing or he could please God and do what God wanted him to do. But he could not do both. And in our lives, there are going to be all kinds of opportunities for us to make that exact same choice. Because when you when you read what Jesus says about what it means to follow him, he has some pretty. Pretty rigid ideas about how we're to follow him. Right? I mean, if you really devote yourself to, the, to Jesus and to his teachings, there, there's a lot of things that many would say are, are kind of radical. I mean, that's kind of way out there. Right? And we realize this because there are so many that want a what we might call a tame Christianity. Right? We want a, a Christianity that offers hope and gives peace doesn't really make any demands on our lives. We want the hope in times of trouble. We want peace when the news is bad, but we don't want a Christianity or a Jesus that says live this way or do that. And so people will tell us if we really commit ourselves to Christ, they'll say things like, you need to calm down. Don't don't go to extremes. You don't want to be fanatical about it. Of course, the it is our relationship with Jesus. But the thing is, what the world calls fanatical or radical, I mean, that's just what Jesus called following him. What the world calls taking it easy, being a little more balanced, well, that's what the Laodiceans called normal. And that's what Jesus called lukewarm. If we really commit ourselves to Christ and begin and determine we're going to do his will, there are going to be times where the will of God crosses with the will of man. And we have to determine whose approval are we going to be seeking. Right? For instance, here's just several ways I thought of. And morality. Right? God has said that we are to be holy as he is holy. And God hasn't left the idea of holiness in the realm of of some nebulous as long as you feel good. He has told us, do this and don't do that. He has told us that there are certain things that if we do these things, we have no part in the kingdom of God. He has told us what to think about, how to speak. Right? All of these things make up what it is to be holy. Now, God's standard for holiness is not the world's standard for morality. And if we determine I'm going to live by God's standard of holiness, it will at times conflict with the world's standard of morality. And we will have to choose. Do I want people to be pleased with me or do I want God to be pleased with me? Because we cannot live standards of a holy God and please an immoral world at the same time. Generosity. The Bible says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that may lay hold on eternal life. Now, the world tells us to hoard all you can get and to spend it on yourself. And the Bible says, enjoy what God gives you. But be generous. Help others. Right? And as you do this, do be ready to give, willing to share. Store up treasures in heaven. 
where moth and rust do not, do not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Now, the world is going to tell us, oh, you, can't, you can't be generous like that. If you, if you continue to act like that, why, you're going to do without. You won't be able to have the iPhone 47. You won't be able to have this or to do that. You, you might have to cut down on something and, and you don't want to do that. You'll deprive your children if they don't get to go to Disneyland every year. And God says, be generous. Give to others. If necessary, lower your standard of living that others can be elevated in their standard of living. That's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So if we determine to live according to God's standard of generosity, there's going to be conflict with the world that is selfish and greedy. And we're going to have to determine, do we want the approval of man? Do we want the approval of God? Priorities. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Don't worry about what to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about tomorrow. Determine above all else, you're just going to do what I want you to do. Let me worry about everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, again, the world, the world isn't going to tell us to, to seek Jesus first. The world is going to tell us to seek pleasure first. The world is going to tell us to seek prosperity first. The world is going to tell us to seek ourselves first. Right? And so if we determine to live by that standard and have the priorities that God wants us to have, there's going to be conflict in our relationships. There's going to be human conflict in our lives. And we'll have to choose, do I want people to say, well done? Or do I want God to say, well done? Because we can't always receive both. Actions. Jesus said that anyone desires to come after him, he has to deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. I'll be honest with you. That whole deny yourself thing, I don't like that. I'm not a big fan denying myself. I just kind of want to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. And I'm going to say, you're that way too. Even if it's not true, it makes me feel better to think I'm not alone. The fact is, Jesus said our, our actions, we are to deny ourselves. We are to take up our crosses daily. Follow Him. That is an action we are to take. Things we are to do on a regular basis. But again, the world will not tell us to deny ourselves. The world will not tell us to do something that is difficult as it pertains to religion. The world will tell us to do what makes you feel good. And when it comes to your religion, just don't take it too seriously. And so we're going to be in conflict. Do I do what God wants me to do, or do I do what man wants me to do? Another one is, is reactions. Oh, I don't like this one either. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And I am, I am a Ross Doolin. Mom's maiden name was Doolin. My dad's last name was Ross. And in our family, we are not the turn the other cheek, it's all okay, I'm okay, you're okay kind of people. But we're not get even, folks, either. Right? Getting even is for sissies. We get ahead. Right? Sort of the, the Sean Connery in The Expendables. Uh, not The Expendables. What is it? Um, you bring a knife. They bring a knife. You bring a gun. Uh, the Untouchables. Yeah. They bring a knife. You bring a gun. Right? They push my books off the desk. I'm going to knock them off their desk. Right? I mean, you don't just get even. You get ahead. Now, I'm 
You may not be that way, but that was the way I was raised to be. And the Bible says that's not going to work. The Bible says, repay no one evil for evil. I mean, that's it's tough, right? Because the world will say, if they do something to you and you don't get even, you're a sissy. You're a pansy. So do we want the world to think we're tough and manly? Or do we want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant, because we can't do both? And then servanthood. Bible says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Esteem others as better than yourself. I don't even like saying that. But that's how we're to live. Again, the world says you're worth it. Have it your way. What you want is the most important thing. And the Bible says that may be important, but other people are important too. Look out for them as well. In fact, put them ahead of you when necessary and when needed. It's not, I can't be a servant and get the applause of the world. If I serve people the way the Bible says to serve people, the world will say I'm a doormat. The world will say I just don't know how to stand up for myself. The Bible will say I'm Christ-like and I have the mind of Christ. Do I want the approval of man? Do I want the approval of God? And these are just a few. All of the commands that the Bible gives us, all of the ways that Scripture teaches us to live are countercultural. They will never be popular. They will never be the norm. And they never have been. And in all of our lives, every day of our lives, we're going to have a choice. And we have a decision to make. Will I do what brings the applause of man? Or will I do what receives the approval of God? And most of the time, I cannot do both at the same time. And if I want to receive Jesus... I have to decide that the approval of God is more important than the approval of man. And then finally, believe and obey Scripture. Jesus said, do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, to whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, again, I find this pretty fascinating. Because here were people who were, theoretically at least, devoted to the word of God. And what Jesus says to them is, you really don't believe. Now, earlier in verse 40... What he said is, in verse 39 and 40, he said that Scripture points to him, but they wouldn't obey Scripture and come to him that they might be saved. Now he explains why they won't obey Scripture. They really don't believe it. And that makes sense, I think. I mean, I would not... I mean, we, the things that we looked at, the priorities, the reactions, and the generosity. I mean, if I really didn't believe that there were treasures in heaven that were better than the treasures on earth, I wouldn't be generous. If I really didn't believe that Jesus cared if I denied myself, took up my cross... I wouldn't do that. I really didn't believe that the approval of God was worth more than the approval of man. I wouldn't turn the other cheek. I mean, I wouldn't do those things if I didn't believe what the Bible said. So faith is necessary 
for obedience. So they, they didn't believe the Bible. And that, again, I think that's interesting considering who they are. They are a people that are at least outwardly devoted to the Bible. And I thought about that. And here's what I think. And, and I may be wrong, right? So this is my opinion. This is Rossology more than theology, maybe. You're, you're, well, you're well able to disagree with me on this. I think they didn't necessarily believe the Bible as much as they used the Bible. Right? By obeying the Bible and committing themselves to being Pharisees, they received the respect of man. They received the approval of man. People look up to them. They got to make decisions that influenced the entire nation. By their outward commitment to Scripture, they received power, they received wealth, and they received influence in their community. I believe they're... Their outward or their appearance of obedience to Scripture was more a matter of pragmatism than it was true faith in the Bible. Obeying the Bible, or at least partially obeying the Bible, they got something out of it. And so they would be devoted to it as long as it continued to make their lives better. But deep down, they really didn't believe Scripture. Because Jesus said if they would have believed what Moses wrote, they would have recognized that he was the Christ. They then would have come to him. They would have been saved. Now, in our day, I think this is so important for us to understand that there is a huge push for modern Christianity to kind of lay the Bible aside. right? To not make it central to who we are, to what we do. And the way that's worded, generally I've heard it goes like this. I have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't need rules that come from an old book. Now, there's probably other ways that it's worded. But the same idea is the Bible is just a book and I have Jesus. And since I have Jesus, I don't need a book. And it's kind of a spiritual sounding answer, right? I have a real living relationship with Jesus. How can can a book compare to my Christ and my Savior leading me? Oh, that that sounds great. And I would never... I mean, part of the whole... The gospel is that Jesus is enough. Through Him we have all that we need. But I would, before anyone embraced that mindset that the Bible is outdated or that the Bible is static and doesn't help us, I would ask some questions that you should answer. First is, how do we know Jesus? How do we, how do we even come to know Him? Right? Because Jesus doesn't physically live here, does He? We, don't, we can't go to His house. We can't sit down and look at Him. So how do we know Him? We know Him by faith. And faith comes by hearing And hearing by the word of God. How do I know what Jesus is like? It's recorded in here. How do I know what Jesus would do? It's recorded in here. How do I know what Jesus has done? It's recorded in here. Listen, I would contend that I'm not sure it's even possible to know Jesus apart from the Bible. Now, I believe there are, the Bible talks about false Christs. 
and false things. And I think we can make up an idea of what Jesus is like without the Bible. But to truly know that Jesus who died on the cross and rose again, this book, it's necessary. It is the only book that accurately, infallibly tells us who he is, what he's like and what he's done. We know Jesus through the Bible. The Bible is meant to be a foundation in our faith. It is meant to be a foundation in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is critical. But beyond how do we know Jesus, I think since we're saying Jesus is all we need, another question would be, what did Jesus say? Right? Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke 6, it's on page 787. And start at verse 47. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, dug down deep, and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. And also, or but he who heard and did not and did nothing is like a man built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, what did Jesus say? was the foundation of our lives. His words. And how do we build on that foundation? We, we believe it and we do it. What, see, what makes the difference between these two people? Isn't the level of the storm. Both people faced basically the same storm. Both people faced basically the same circumstances of life. What made the difference was that one heard and one obeyed and one heard and said that was enough. But Jesus said the foundation of our faith is meant to be his word. In fact, look at what he says in verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? I mean, what he's saying is, why even bother calling me Lord if you're not going to do what I've told you to do? Jesus, Jesus intended that his word would be the foundation in our lives. Jesus knew we would always need his word to guide us. Right? Because when we build with the wrong foundation, we set ourselves up for failure. When we believe something other than what he has revealed is true, we set ourselves up to go the wrong way. Right? And the thing is, we can believe we're right and still be wrong. We can believe we're making decisions that lead us down the path of life when in fact our decisions are leading us down the path of death. Look at what Proverbs says. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Right? You and I can make decisions that in our heart of hearts, it just feels right. But in the end, it is a way that leads us to death and destruction. 
Considering that, Je- that Jeremiah, God says in Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. How can I know how to take the right way? How can I, I know what needs to be done? I have to look beyond myself because I can think I'm right. I could not tell you the number of people that have made horrific, life-destroying decisions. And all the while, they claim, I just feel peace about this. I just feel in my heart, this is what needs to be done. I know I'm right. They were sure it was right. But it led to death and destruction. How do we keep from deceiving ourselves in that way? We believe and we obey the Scripture. If I want to receive Jesus and I want to follow Jesus, I must believe the Bible. And I must obey the Bible. For without that, I will reject Jesus and do what seems right to me every single time. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.